I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Self-Helpful Podcast is brought to you by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping life and leadership coaches. Visit ziggler.com and let them inspire your true coaching performance. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining me as I talk with today's most important influencers, guides, and changemakers to uncover what truly drives them and extract the big takeaway from their personal journey and their greatest wisdom. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and this is Self-Helpful. In this episode, I'm kicking off a series of What Drives You episodes with some incredibly interesting people, people who got clear on what they wanted and why. That's what creates your authentic drive, knowing what you want and why, really why. Here I bring you Sean Askinosi. He's founder of Askinosi Chocolate. If you're a Seth Godin follower, you have likely heard of Sean and Askinosi Chocolate. As Seth is a huge fan of Sean, the company, and of course, the chocolate. As you're about to hear, Sean's dad died at 14 and tore his world apart, setting him on a, as he says, a maniacal pace to accomplish big achievements and prove to God that he didn't need him. He ultimately pursued law school, withstood 11 law school rejections, yet he went on to have an exemplary 20-year career, but he never overcame his dad's sickness and death and some of the drive from that. Well, this led to him volunteering for palliative care at a hospital, starting a five-year journey to completely go to a different vocation. A significant statement from him in this episode is this. It's a funny paradox, but the first step in sorting myself out was actually not to think about myself and instead to focus on other people. Sean has a book called Meaningful Work, a quest to do great business, find your calling, and feed your soul. I highly, highly recommend that. You can find it wherever you buy books, of course. You can check him out at his website, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Askinosi, A-S-K-I-N-O-S-I-E. Now, though, we're going to talk about what drives him. 
All right. Well, I'd be remiss to start off the show as deep as I want to get without talking about chocolate. And I'm sitting here, I've been eating some after lunch. And uh, I, I wanted to know, because I saw a picture on your website of something made me think, what are some of your, sp your personal, maybe uncommon chocolate pairings? Oh, wow. Well, I mean, I, I have it with so many different things. I mean, probably cocoa nibs on peanut butter toast is a little bit uncommon. Okay. Um, and I love that crunch of the cocoa nibs and they don't have any sugar. So I do that for breakfast or I'll put just cocoa nibs on yogurt. And I love that pairing, but really one of the things that I love is chocolate and cheese. So for people who really like different kinds of cheese and they like to explore different kinds of cheese, there can be awesome pairings that are both contrasting um, and some that are comparable. And so if you're going for a really um, robust cheese and you pair it with a sweeter chocolate, it can be a really cool thing to do for parties and having guests over for dinner. It's really a lot of fun. There's why I ask. I've never done that. Yeah. I, I adore yeah. cheese. We have a farmer's market. So every Friday we get varieties of different flavors of cheese. I have not done that. Cocoa nibs. I put it, uh, my kids love it in oatmeal. I put it in there yeah. with some peanut That's butter great. and, and other yes. stuff. Well, hey, also congratulations on the uh, new birth of your granddaughter. That's awesome. Thank you so much. First, yeah. first, oh, man. That's like, is that your first yeah. grandkid? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, was well, what is it? Goldie. Goldie, sweet. And that's with your daughter, who, uh, of course, is your uh, primary business partner, isn't she? Yes, she is. And she and co-author in the book. Ah, beautiful. Well, yeah. let's, I want to get into this. And I mean, of course, everybody, we're going to get into uh, the story of you being a lawyer and going to chocolate, of course. But I, from day one, was just enamored with the story overall. And to me, the foundation of your story starts as a youth dealing with your dad's death at the age of 14, even up to then, because I'm curious, because we've got the root, you know, after that, we know what you, you know, got all these things that you did. What was happening even before then? I mean, do you have a memory before then of some specific pursuits you were going mm -hmm. after then? Yeah, my dad died when I was 14. But before he got sick, um, I remember when I went to camp, I went to a camp in Minnesota when I was 11 and it was a, a month long camp. And I recall wanting to win this, for lack of a better term, the all camp award. It was very hard for first time campers to achieve this because you had to really excel in all areas. So it could be sailing and canoeing and riflery and archery. And um, but I remember wanting to to win that. Uh, and I did. And and uh, um, I look back on that fondly. And uh, it was a great experience to be away from home. And uh, I wanted to win it and wanting to win was really, even back then, a competition with myself. I didn't feel as though I was, you know, 11 competing with other people who were also wanting that prize. But I remember specifically that I wanted it for myself. Um, and, and, and I think this is not uncommon for a lot of boys uh, that age, I wanted my dad's approval. Yeah. Uh, I wanted him to think that was cool. You know, he, he'd been a Marine uh, for a long, long time. He'd been a drill instructor, very in shape guy. And uh, I knew he would think that was cool. And he did. Sounds like a healthy motive then, especially if you're owning it for yourself. Cause I was going to, so if you're a high achiever, man, especially among kids, I'm somewhat, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, and because I was that too, I'm a little suspect of it usually. And mm -hmm. how often is it 
a mm-hmm. healthy motive. Do you feel like, I mean, how was that an in, was that just you period? Or was that an, did you have siblings, Sean? I have, yes, I have a younger brother. Um, so he really wasn't an influence on that. My parents, uh, I think were an influence um, early on and that, and that experience in particular. Uh, however, after my dad died, I'm in high school. Then I put overachieving literally into turbo and just go nuts. And I think that's, you know, really, I do a lot of work with grieving families and children who've experienced the death of a family member and have done that for work for 20 years. And I think they're really, if I can oversimplify and say, there's two ways you can go. Um, you can really go down to alcohol and drugs and just completely, you know, letting go of your life and school and everything, or you can just achieve every single thing in your path uh, as a grieving young person. And that's what I did. I mean, I was, I wasn't great in sports. I tried wrestling for a while, but I really, really excelled in speech and debate in high school, went to nationals. Um, I went to Boy State. I was governor at Boy State. I was a house page in the U.S. House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. I worked for the American Embassy in Thailand when I was 19. I went overseas to school in Japan for a year in college. And the list just goes on and on. And I I was doing it because I thought to myself that I could prove to God that I didn't need him. I didn't need him. Yeah, that was that wasn't a very healthy motive. Well, okay, I want to ask about that, uh, but I'll jump back with your before your dad died, and being as boys, we are often primarily looking at our father for approval more than mother. Would you say he was in unhealthy or healthy uh, a high expectations dad of you? No. Did you no. feel like you had his he, approval either way? Yeah, I felt like I had his approval either way. And um, we did a lot of stuff together. He was a good father. He was tough. As I said, he was a Marine. Um, He boxed golden gloves in New York City. And um, he was a tough guy. He was a lawyer himself um, before he died. But yeah, no, it was, um, it was, I knew he approved of what I I was doing no matter what. Well, so then when you say you go after that and an achievement kicks into hyperdrive, you wanted to do things your dad's proud of, given that, you know, he's dead. So my dad up in heaven who may be watching, but the greater drive was prove. And I, I pulled that out of your book, prove to God I didn't need him and could accomplish all my goals without his help. So that tells, so there was a motive for doing it, but you could do that. Did that, did that accelerate it? You didn't want to just oh, achieve things without God, but you wanted to achieve more than the norm. You even more. talk about, I, I pulled that out that you had, you took that, you took that maniacal pace starting there, yeah. even into adulthood. And it oh, was, uh, so was it a, a rebellion in essence? Yes. I think it was a rebellion and I, I had, the string was let out and I, I took it all the way that I, that I could until I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, I ran, I ran that string out all the way, man. And uh, it, it, so the, the motive that I mentioned went, started in high school and went into my early 40s. So that took you into becoming, into your career as a criminal defense lawyer. So yeah. r- right there, obviously it was as often as the case, when you look at that criminal defense lawyer, a lot of kids would think, oh my gosh, that's, a, that's way far out there, like being a doctor or whatever. To you, obviously having a father that did that, just like me having a father who's an entrepreneur, that's what I knew and it was easy to go into that. So that makes sense. Did you really, did you really desire that pursuit authentically? That's a great question. Um, I spent 
time with my dad uh, in the courtroom um, before he died, you know, and, and went with him to his office. So I, I really experienced that life of a lawyer. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to practice law with him, be his partner. That was my dream. Um, and I think a lot of, a lot of kids think, oh, I want to be like daddy, you know, or I want to yeah. be like mommy, you know, I want to follow in my parents' footsteps. But when he, but after he died, it became, uh, um, I, I was going to do it no matter what, you know, and I, I wasn't, I did not have very good grades in college. Uh, we joke about it now, you know, I didn't get into law school when I first started. I was rejected from 11 law schools. Um, and, I finally, the University of Missouri finally took a chance on me. And uh, then I, I proved those standardized tests wrong and graduated, you know, in the top 20% of the class. But that again was this drive. I mean, just this drive that um, is almost even hard for me to describe because I don't have, you know, a super high IQ. I'm, I'm, I, I don't have a lot of brain power, but I could tell in that experience in pursuing law school, I could tell what I did have was a desire to, to achieve that thing that was in front of me that would allow me the stamina to work harder than the next person. That's what did it. That's what got me into law school. That's what got my good grades in law school. And candidly, that's what won in the courtroom. It wasn't because I was some, you know, fast on my feet cross-examiner. I, I was good at cross-examination, but I mean, these were very, very stressful cases. I specialized in murder cases. Um, and I never lost a jury trial. Well, um, <laughs> the drive to win was just buried in me and just, it came out all the time. You know, I wanted to win. I wanted to win. And I did. So, so I want to ask, obviously you've got a, a criminal defense lawyer. It's got to be one of the most, more controversial vocations that, you know, out there, especially as we see mm -hmm. it depicted probably unfairly out there in the media and whatnot. But in that, so you just mm -hmm. talk about, I wanted to win. Okay, good. We all, kudos to all anybody who wants to do well at their job, you know, no matter what it is in that though, of course, the bad side is depicted as helping the bad guy get, you know, get off scot-free. The good side of it, we would assume, is helping the wrongly, uh, the, the wrongly accused, not. Yeah. Where was your focal point there? Because you could theoretically say, no, I was just there to do my job and win. And that was outside of that. Where were you? Well, my my job was my my job was to protect the institution of criminal justice. My job okay. was to safeguard the institution, um, which comprised our laws, our statutes, the right to a jury trial, the right to cross-examination, the right to a lawyer, and the, and the right to make certain that the Constitution was followed when the prosecutor and the government brings a charge against my client. So if they were guilty, I, I defended guilty people and I defended innocent people. I, but I knew where the line was always, the line of ethics. I aced that class in law school. It's the only class that I got the number one grade because, wow. and this is going to sound a little odd or maybe not, but I wanted to know where the line was. And I wanted to know in the rules of professional conduct that lawyers have to follow. It's a very um, sort of complicated set of rules of professional conduct, otherwise known as ethics. Some people listening would say, ethics, lawyers, wait, right, right, right. really? But, but, I, but, but I, I wanted to know exactly where the ethical line was because I was going to go right up to it. Because if you, you, Kevin, you're my client, you're charged with murder and I believe in your innocence and I'm, I'm not going to lie in front of the jury. 
I'm not going to lie to the judge. I'm going to I'm going to be truthful and I'm going to do my absolute best job. And I will fear no one who is trying to put you in prison for the rest of your life or trying to take your life by the death penalty. Okay, you, of course, talk about you came to the end of your career there. It was overwhelming. But in it, even when you were in it, was there maybe the pace was hard, but was there fulfillment in it for you? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. There was I mean, there's nothing like hearing a not guilty verdict read by the judge in front of the jury when you firmly believe in your client's innocence and that client might get the death penalty. Okay. There's nothing quite like it. Or or someone accused of, of rape and had sat in solitary confinement for three years and then they hire me for the appeal of the case and I convinced the judge to retest the evidence and it turned out that the DNA didn't match, match his and he was the wrong guy and he got out after three years of, in, of being in solitary. That feels good, you know, and yeah. and even just little things, just doing a good job cross-examining an expert witness, there's fulfillment in that. Absolutely. So you had fulfillment. You just, you just laid out the core of purpose that you mattered to other people. You were helping other people. So in that sense, is it fair to say you did not leave that and go into something, go into, you know, chocolate in this case to fulfill of that void of, I had no purpose. Cause we hear that story a lot, but that's not the case no. with you. You were fulfilled no. in that. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top-tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to take about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to 100 times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and Air Doctor is just the best. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so it, your lungs don't have to. 
Air Doctor it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code Kevin. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com. Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Right. But then still until it stopped, it's, it stopped. So my fulfillment stopped. Why? And that's what happened. I I loved, I loved it, loved it, loved it. Um, why is, um, we'd have to maybe do a five part series on the why, but the why it stopped is, um, so it's easier for me to, to articulate the manifestations of it stopping as opposed to, um, opening the hood up and, and, and really being able to determine why it stopped. But, yeah, that, that's um, the point of this show. You just, yeah, yeah. You just got and, it. And, and, and so when you look under the hood as to why it stopped, I think that I had reached a point where the desire to win at all costs within the law was receding, was receding into the grief that was never resolved in my life over my dad's death. So in other yeah. words, so, so now what's happening toward the, toward the, my early forties, I'm winning, everything's great. I'm making a ton of money. And the, and, and it sort of hit me in a sense that the unresolved grief over my father's death would now for whatever reason, begin to blossom and it would not supersede or it would supersede the desire to win, the desire to prove something to God, the desire to prove something to my dad. Um, and so in that, that case, it's kind of like they say, you know, that the pain of uh, until the pain of staying the same yeah. is worse than the pain of changing. Yeah. You won't. Yeah. That's what happened to me. Where if we go back and you say you, after your dad died, you developed this, this maniacal pace. You took that into adulthood. You took this into your career as a lawyer. In that same, if I can make a parallel over here that you are trying to prove what you can do without God, did that start to come to fruition during that time? Did that play a role of realizing you didn't need to prove God wrong? You didn't want to? Was there a reconciliation mm -hmm. with God amongst that time? Yes, there was a reconciliation with God. Um, and remember when I said that I let the string run out? Yeah. Well, here's the deal. It didn't run all the way out. In other words, I didn't break from the string. The string had me all along. It was a long string, a long thread. And, but, but the thread never broke. All right. Okay. And so there came a, there, there did, there did come a time. I mean, yesterday's scripture in the lectionary was about 
Jesus, you know, um, talking to his disciples about going after the one lost sheep and the celebration over the, the location and finding of that lost sheep. So that sheep was on a long thread, man. And I was too. <laughs> so, and so, yes, of course, there was this reconciliation that happened gradually. It did happen. And there was an awakening in me, a reawakening of my faith that had been contorted and twisted by the church as a young person into something that really wasn't faith, uh, that really wasn't a reflection of the gospel. And I didn't know it, but that twisted view of it, um, even that twisted, mangled view of it still had a hold of me in a good way all through those years. And so it was just my job to have some basic, just low level concept of self-awareness. I don't even know how that happened, you know, at the end of my law career, just, just this, just this sliver of self-awareness yeah. to let a little bit of that reconciliation in. And that's all, it, that's all it needed. I appreciate that when you, as you cited in the book, you came to that end that there was still a five year period of time. That wasn't just, you came to the end, walked out and did the Jerry yeah. Maguire and, and left it <laughs> right. and went, went somewhere else. <laughs> and you tell the story of volunteering and, and, and palliative care at a hospital. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, during that five years of figuring things out, and the line that you gave in the book, and I pulled it out, Sean, it's a funny paradox, but the first step in sorting myself out was actually not to think about myself and instead to focus on other people. I've heard that before, but I've never heard it enough. I'll never hear it enough. And I think it's a secret. I, I, you know, in the business world, you know, the five secrets to whatever, I, I, I can't stand that stuff. There's no secrets out there. Sol Solomon told us there's nothing new under the sun a long time ago. This is, exactly. it, it was known, but we don't know it. It's one of those... Uh, the common sense, it's not common anymore, but that we don't do that. And I grew up, you know, my dad and you know, his, mm -hmm. his, uh, recipe for depression was go serve somebody. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Mine too. But we don't yes. do that. I mean that right there, I, I, I feel like that could have been, that's another book in itself or, or, or just a message that is life changing. If people could hear that, I'm going to read it again. Listen, folks, this is what he said. It's a funny paradox, but the first step in sorting myself out was actually not to think about myself and instead to focus on other people. I mean, counseling doesn't give us that. And, and all, you know, in all uh, honor to my, my great counseling friends and the great job that they do, I don't find that as a primary piece of counseling. I don't know, I don't know why it's not paramount. I don't either. Um, I think it's, um, and I, I also think that we can read that line from the book and we can talk about it, but until the, you know, your friends and my friends, you know, until they're prepared to receive that. So yes, it's common sense, but when they're prepared to receive it, then it's like a lock and key, you know, they get it, they understand it. They'll take one step in that direction. That step will then will then, um, reinforce the decision that they made that it was the right one. And then they'll do it again and again and again. And before you know it, they, they're having a conversation like you and I are and extolling the virtues of service. We know from the great spiritual masters that this is the truth. We know it. We're taught it. Um, and uh, Jesus taught this. The Gospels are all about it. The first church, the Acts chapter uh, 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 42 church, you know, talks about this. And this is, this is, um, this is life. This is what life is.
You, in looking back, misquoted two forty two chapter two forty okay forty two yeah. I'm studying Acts right now, so you you got me there. Um, looking back though, at, during that time, so you you left that. Do you? I, I'm always interested in the re, the regrets talk. You know, any any regrets, regrets that, I, and I struggle with them. So I'll I'll admit, I'll put I'll put myself and own it there that sometimes I do in time with time, thinking, man, I wish I had known that sooner. Now I don't want to discount what I learned in the process and that it made me who I am. But I tend to, and I know we can get into the semantics of what the word regret is and what we mean by that, what we what uh, definition that we attribute to that, you know, with guilt and, and and yada yada. But I look back, and even though I can find redemption and gratitude in some of the background, there are things I did that I wish I hadn't. There's time I feel like I wasted. It's hard for me not to wish that I had. How do you view the the past? as you are where you are now, knowing what you know, doing what you're do, doing, serving people in the way that you are now? I'm, I look back on it with gratitude. Um, um, and even I'm, I'm thankful even for the moments that I'm not super proud of. Um, and, you know, I've talked about this with Father Cyprian, my spiritual director at the monastery where I go. And We've talked about it for 20 years, and um, there is a part of me that um, maybe enjoyed the work in some ways too much. Um, and I don't regret that, though, because I'm grateful for it, because it gave me an opportunity to now have compassion for those who are in that place. Okay. And um, so I don't regret that. I also think that we have to look at the, the idea of regret in a continuum that would have to do, let's say, with at one end could be what we would call, um, well, what some might call a sin um, or some would say where they have truly attempted to separate themselves from God. So a separation from God. On the other end of the continuum is, you know, I, I, you know, should have helped that person across the street, you know, and I regret not doing that. But um, so, but for the most part, I think that um, it's not a good notion for us to reflect on those regrets because in doing so, we're, um, well, I think in doing so, we um, are questioning the creator's path with us um, in this mystery, as the Catholics call it, the Paschal mystery. That is this transition from death in the valley to resurrection. So this, this birth and death and resurrection Paschal mystery is a journey and it's a pathway. And right now, man, I mean, we're in we're in it, right? We're in the valley. We're, we're, we're collectively in this um, mysterious valley of pain and suffering. And so we, God is with us. So the, the, the Emmanuel God is with us. And I think if we look back on something and say, well, I could have done it this way or could have done it that way, is to turn away from God's intentions for us or his, not even so much his intentions, but his, his partnership with us, his promise to be shoulder to shoulder with us, you know, that, that is the promise. It's the promise. Isaiah's promise isn't, 
you know, I'm going to heal you and everything's going to be fine. And you're going to have a money tree in your backyard. It's I'm going to be with you. And, and, and if he's going to be with us, I think it's a bad exercise. It's it's um, not fruitful to look back and say, well, I regret that because it's perfect. It's perfect. It's exactly the way that the way I look at it for me is it's it's exactly the way it should have been. Even the heartbreak, especially the heartbreak. I want to come back to heartbreak to that word, but you you said a word, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do this for my own my own uh, selfish desires, which I can do. It's my show. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm in a discussion deeply with my brother right now, and that was yesterday. I was pacing out in the back, and it was the discussion of what. And you, in a sense, said we have free will to turn away from God. I'm not making this a, a, a God focus necessarily, but I'm yeah, happy to yeah. focus. I'm happy to focus there. Turn away from God, but can we? actually disconnect do we have the ability to disconnect from our creator that's the topic that came up mm -hmm. I'll, I'll just toss that to you mm -hmm. perspective well um <laughs> it depends on whether or not we're talking to the um the assemblies of god well uh, sure. of the church or <laughs> sure or, I'm, well, I'm talking I, to I, you I, i'm talking to yes. you. yes well okay for me i think we have the power to think that we've disconnected from god okay and that is where I fall with this. And it's an experiential um, thing for myself because I believe that God created everything and, and he created us in his image. And I think he created the trees and the, the fish. And I believe that God is the creator. And I just don't think um, I, I'm I do. I do think that there might be some very, very limited circumstances in which we can separate from God. But for the most part, you know, for 99% of it, I think we can, I think we can foolishly think that we can separate from God, but we can't. I, I, re I, I'm with you in that line of thinking. That's good. Thank you. Wow. That'll, that'll add some more flavor into our discussion. You know, as you, and I know the question of, you know, why did you then go to, so you're in, pal in palliative care, you're taking care of people, you, you share that experience of, of the, I talk about fulfillment on uh, squared, on steroids that you felt in caring for people in that way, uh, in that care, and then you go on, and then of course the story goes, you go into chocolate. Uh, is it fair to say, because when we look at a vocational change of that nature, and we've got a lot of people listening who are entrepreneurs, solopreneurs in business for themselves, want to be whatnot, uh, it would be a great story that uh, a stone tablet came down and said, Sean, it's chocolate. That, that's it. Uh, there was this great thing. Or did you look at it and go, look, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to live. Here are some areas I could do it in. And you happen to be exposed to that one and you walked into it. Give us the, the fruition, the catalyst, if you would. Those five years of searching, you know, were like everybody else. I was researching and even back then Googling and reading books and thinking I would find the answer. And, and, and I, that's not where I found it. And so during this time of service at the hospital, really just visiting with I didn't take care of. I just visited with patients, you know, would stop by rooms of people essentially who were dying in the hospital, of, yeah. you know. Um, whether it was oncology, cardiology, or um, neurology, whatever, and just visit with them. And if they had someone in the room, visit with their family and just as a volunteer. Uh, and then at the, at, sometimes I would read to them. Sometimes I would read scripture to them. At the end, I would ask them if, if they'd like me to pray for them. Most dying people will take you up on that. And uh, I'd ask them what they want me to pray for. And so over time, 
in having these conversations and having moments, not very long ones, just moments of actually thinking of them and not me for just, you know, like seconds at a time. What happened is those seconds were marked. The seconds were marked with clarity that gave me this opportunity after those moments to expand those moments. So the the clarity just exponentially expanded um, and cleared my mind Hmm. and, and, and it removed the clutter. So I could feel this happening when I would leave the hospital sometimes, a handful of times, and it, I'd, I'd finish my little volunteer job on Fridays and I'd go out to my car and feel like I was walking on air and yeah. my feet weren't on the ground. Well, that was, that was a, a, um, <clears throat> a sort of signal, if you will, that I was um, in the right place at the right time. I was doing the right thing. And this clarity then began to really work on me. And I knew I wanted to do something in food. I had no idea what it would be. And, you know, looked at franchises, looked at starting stuff. And I, I never had this lifelong thing with chocolate. And uh, But then I thought, well, I wanted to make something from scratch. And I thought maybe cupcakes. I've made thousands of cupcakes. <laughs> and, um, um, and then I was driving one day to a funeral of a distant relative. And just I was by myself uh, out near my grandparents' farm. And uh, I thought, well, you know, maybe I should make chocolate from scratch. I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know it came from a bean. I was like just some mixed up dark substance, you know, from Lucy or something, you know. And so then that little that little fragment in my mind um, was all I needed. You know, it was a seed that then I just started researching. And then I went to the Amazon within a couple of months of that. And then it all all, you know everything broke loose from there. And, uh, and then I started to wind down my law practice and bought a building and that's it. Knew you wanted to do something in food. So where was the germination of that? Well, (laughs) Oh boy. So one time I'm waiting for a jury to come back and my client's mother and father are there and he's, you know, he's in his forties and he was, he, he was uh, on trial for murder and um, the jury was taking its time and uh, his mother, who was older, um, was a baker. And so I started talking with her about apple pie recipes. I had now, mind you, I had not made a pop tart at this point. <laughs> All I'm thinking about is winning and am I going to win this case? And and uh, and. So anyway, she told me her apple pie recipe. It was a very interesting way of making apple pie. And I, th- I was fascinated by her story. Jury came back, not guilty. I went home and made this apple pie within two days. And I, I thought, that is really cool. I made the, I made the um, crust from scratch. I went to Barnes & Noble and bought every book on baking, like a true lawyer would do. Um, <laughs> researched, you know, how to make pie crust. And that's, that was the, uh, that's where it all started, really. Really? So just a love affair or an interest or a hobby of food. So that's going on while you're doing law. Now you come into this transformational time of life. And I I didn't know that. So so during that time of looking at where do I want to do, you knew it was, that's a big statement. You knew you wanted to do something in food. That's, 
That's pretty specific yeah. in and of I bought, itself. I, I bought two big green eggs. I was in the beginning of that movement. And, uh, you know, I, I started cooking outside. And But why? why? Again, we're back to, uh, to motive. Why did yes, you look yes. at, at all the things? Because you're in palliative care. I mean, you could come up with so many directions. I could directions. have been a chaplain. Yeah, I was yeah, going to say been a chaplain. so many directions yeah. that were not food. Uh, yes. Well, in fact, this is a point I really I'm, thank you for, for, for allowing me this opportunity. Many people when reading the book or hearing the story, they say to themselves, well, you got your message. You love this work at the hospital. Why didn't you just go become a chaplain? And what my, here's Hospice. my message. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but my message to, to your listeners is this volunteer experience was a bridge. It was in the threshold. So there was this long threshold and the, the, the clarity came to me and will come to your listeners when they serve someone who needs them. And this is where the clarity comes. It could be the termination point. I mean, it could be the service or whatever it could end up be the terminal point where you're like, oh, hey, I like it here. I think I'll do that. But what I'm suggesting is, is that when we're in the threshold, as, as poet philosopher John O'Donohue describes it, essentially in the dark, um, if you will, as we're fumbling in the dark, it, many of us are, well, we're in a threshold now. Um, and we're, we, when we find ourselves in a threshold, we tend to sort of, we, we're, we're, we're grabbing, you know, and we're, we're lost and we can't settle. We can't breathe. But what I'm saying is this experience will allow calm. It will allow clarity. Um, it will allow the opportunity to receive wisdom, if that's our prayer and meditation and desire. And that's what happened to me. And so the clarity came, gosh, something with food, working with your hands, you know, um, making something. Those were the sort of thoughts that were entering my mind during this time. And then this is also important. Many people will read books about the next thing they should do or getting inspiration. Many people will listen to a podcast. They'll listen to our conversation They'll read books on whatever. But what I am suggesting is, great, listen to this podcast and then shut your computer down, put your phone down and go do something. Yeah. You know, yeah. go do, go just do one small step that's inspired you in this conversation today or whatever conversation you're just do one little thing and the universe will conspire behind you and just push you and help you and, and want to give you all the assistance that the communion of saints and the universe will, will provide. Okay. I love that because it brings me back to, uh, and I'm sitting here thinking through, I I've said it before, but I haven't really coined it definitively, but in the aspect of health and wellness, where we, especially in America are dramatically overfed and undernourished that in this information world, in the same way, we're so overfed with information and undernourished and actually going out and doing something. So uh, yes. that's a, a headline statement that you just made. Now you talked about, you know, going into food and working with your hands and obviously in having work that we find joy, find meaning, find purpose. And if the work in and of itself is joyful to you, that serves us as humanity because you're a better Sean, you're, you're, you're fulfilled. And then you may go out and do whatever. So I assume that you saw it in doing that, but did you also see the, vehicle of food as as a methodology of 
serving people in the way that you do? Because in your in your current in, in your business, Ask Nosy Chocolate, I mean, you are well. You've got you know employees, you've got people there, but then you've got these cultures that you are serving. You've got people that you are funding uh, over there in, uh, in in their schooling and, and whatnot uh, that you're able to do through that. So you're able to package it together. But where do you where do you steer people? If you get my point, you, can, you know, just being fulfilled in and of yourself, that's valid because you're a better human for everybody else. But in your work also, it can also be the vehicle of servitude. How do you, how do you balance those or guide people and lead people? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, first, let me say one one thing about one, one correction I want to make is yeah. the, the farmer partners that I work with in Tanzania, Philippines, Ecuador, and Amazon, I'm not serving them. I mean, in the sense that we've been talking about, okay. because they are, we are, I believe in this concept of mutuality and kinship. And I want to approach this experience with humility and recognize that they are serving me. In other words, they serve my heart. They serve my soul. They give me purpose. They give me moments of clarity, just like I was talking about in the hospital. And so I think it's really important that when we're, when we're searching in this space and when we're seeking in this space, that we seek with humility and remember at all times to be prepared for this massive transformative switch from teacher to student and student to teacher, from service recipient and service giver, that there's this constant we have to be willing, we need to be willing for this transformation to occur, not by anything we've done, but by, by what we surrender and what we let happen. But then to, more to your question, I don't think a lot about balance um, in these things um, in terms of work-life balance or anything. I don't really know what that means. But, but what, I, what I want to do is I want to be able to harmonize these things. And so if it so happens that um, an entrepreneur has created something that allows this man or woman to feed their family, 
great. Um, and can they have enough? Have they defined enough? Yes, okay. Um, and in the process of this, are they fulfilled in this work to the point that it is, um, as Joseph Campbell would say, giving them opportunities to recognize that they're joyfully alive. You know, he says that people really don't want meaning, but what they really want to know is they want to experience the being joyfully alive. And I think that's probably true. And so if my work, if can I, in my work day, not every day and all day, but does my work give me a chance to know that I'm joyfully alive? If yes, okay, well, my work and life don't need a whole lot of balance. They need harmony. You know, I need to make sure that I'm managing my, um, as David Brooks says, my ordered loves. I need to know my ordered loves of, and I know you understand this, that family is very important to us. Um, and um, the people in my neighborhood and my community, uh, they're very important to me. Um, my, the employees at the factory are important. And so we have these ordered loves that we harmonize with the notion of joyful living. And that to me is what it's all about. You're, thank you for the reminder, you know, on that aspect of the partners you work with, that there is mutual service and it's not just you doing that. I know that well. We have uh, kiddos we've adopted. And of course, we get people who testify, oh, you're so awesome for saving that kid. And right. my wife is the first one to bug eye. Are you kidding? They saved us. I know yes. that. I know it, but yes. I forget it. Sean, I forget yeah. it. Well, uh, it's part of your DNA now. You know it. You really know it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's the deal. So, well, in 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 this, you know, personal. You said you talked about you want to, you know, have people have personal meaning in their work and meaning in their vocation. How long were you into the business before you wrote the book? Um. Well, let's see. I was in the business about, um, I would say, 10 or 12 years. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. So primary motive catalyst to then write this book to primary, you speak to entrepreneurs and, mm -hmm. well, you know what? Let me go down to, you mentioned before heartbreak and you're the second person in three weeks to talk about it in regards to purpose and I am enamored by the concept. And you said, you know, you want to foster that the wonder and curiosity of brokenheartedness as a genesis of creativity, love and presence. I, I think three weeks ago, if not two weeks ago, did a show like this with Sam Collier and he talked about in purpose. He said he tends to, cause I was asking about, you know, it is a passion. I tend to think of some, some things I go after as, as I'm it's a burden or I am burdened by that. I want to go help that. And he said, look at where, where does your heart break? Uh, what breaks your heart? And you're the second person now to bring that to me in a short period of time. So I'm going to give credence to that, that as we are looking to serve what breaks our heart. And, and I'm, I'm curious as I ponder that in our culture, if, you know, as we are less involved in the minutiae of life and with people, if we're, if we don't connect to that, what does break your heart that, that I don't know how many people that's going to resonate with, which is probably a red flag. Well, I say, I, I repeat this all the time. I talk about it in the book. I, but Khalil Gibran says that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. Hmm. So that's why I talk about brokenheartedness all the time, because <clears throat> we're not 
we've our culture has become <clears throat> desensitized in many ways, yes. numb yes. to this. Um, we can read about, like we, you and I were talking about earlier, we can read about this notion of brokenheartedness, but we don't want to feel it. Let, you know, that's out there. We want to keep our distance. But the reason it's important is, is the second half of that quote. If we really want to experience joy, then we have to experience sorrow that brings us to our knees in some cases. We have to be willing to experience it. And no, of course, we don't want to experience it. I don't want you to experience it. You don't want it for me. But what we do want for each other is the recognition that each of our hearts have been broken and we hope maybe even broken open and left open so that we can be reminded of our connectedness, yours and mine, and even the people, especially the people we don't like. Um, and this is why it's important and so important now because it's a, it's a universal truth and it's been with us forever and it will remain with us, but we need to reconnect to that um, muscle in order to truly understand and experience love. Well, as we talked about before, universal truth, but not, not something that's commonly perceived anymore. I, I, I didn't. I, I felt like, you know, you go after joy and positivity and I don't want anything to do with negativity until, well, like as you said, until I couldn't, until I couldn't deny right. the patterns that were happening because I wouldn't look back and see the root cause of those and have sorrow for those and come to truth. And gosh, back to this discussion with my brother and talking about God and talking about love and then the discussion of evil or not. And my pondering of I don't know that we can experience and understand true love without an opposing force, without an opposing choice, if mm -hmm. you would. And you're saying that with that, to have joy, we have to have sorrow, which should give us gratitude back to the regrets issue, I guess. Well, I think we will. We, we will have gratitude. We have to do the work. And I mean, this the this that we're discussing is work. It's not this is not easy. It's lifelong. For me, it's lifelong. Yes, my heart broke when my dad died and the whole experience with the church and how messed up that was. And and but and my heart broke. Um, and but I had to be willing to do the work to connect to it, to be aware of it, to have this self-awareness. Um, and so for me, it's a continual um, practice. It is a discipline. So being able to be aware enough of our pain in our broken hearts and that they're going to continue and that we will have more you know, experiences in life that break our hearts, all sorts of things. I mean, everything that we can see that we know and love and hold dear will die. Um, or we will become separated from it. Our jobs, our marriages, our health, our children, our parents, all will die. And so <laughs> that if those endings don't break your heart, then we have a problem. I agree. You you are so you have so so you went and did it. There's a story, you've got this company. You're doing well, you're doing good. And yet amongst this, you're doing well, you're doing good, you're, you're getting this clarity. You had a catalyst that said, I wanna, I wanna write a book. I, I wanna put this message, I wanna get it out there. 
what, what was, what was the catalyst for doing that? I would say there were multiple catalysts. Um, one of them was, and I talk about this notion of my desire to be um, a small light joined with other lights, a lamp. Um, not a bright, you know, Klieg light, but uh, a small light that can join with others who are singing this song so together we can um, be part of this transformative wave of let's call it a new kind of capitalism. And that's one. The other is I wrote it so that, yes, it's true. There is nothing new under the sun, but there might be uh, readers who have not been exposed to certain concepts. And maybe with my audience of chocolate lovers, you know, that, that like dark chocolate, if I could have some impact on their life and bring them to maybe an author, you know, Father Greg Boyle, the Jesuit who I quote in the book or other authors, then I will have exposed them to some thought that they might not have otherwise had the chance to read and learn and and then develop in their own spiritual lives. So, and I would say um, that I also wrote the book for my granddaughter. Hmm. Goldie. Hmm. You just, speaking of motive, you just said the word, the, the phrase, a transformative way of capitalism. Uh, again, that's not a necessity as a motive for what you do, but it is. Explain that so if anybody hears that and wonders what you mean by it, they understand. Sure. The uh, One of the chapters is titled, How Much is Enough? And I think it's an important concept for all of us to be asking. And, we, and, some, and many of us are asking that right now this question right now, but I think as entrepreneurs, as business owners, as um, just humanity, that we need to ask ourselves about how we, um, what metrics we're using to measure the health of our economies, our micro economies and our communities and our, our global economy and of course our national GDP, which is, you know, the metric that most people use for the health of those things would be um, consumption. And uh, you, you might think, well, gosh, don't you want people to consume your chocolate? Yes, I do. I, of course I do. But I also would encourage people to do it mindfully. And I also spend a lot of time um, trying to understand the moving target of how much is enough. How much is enough um, debt service? You know, how much is enough cash flow? How much is enough insurance that I can buy for our employees? So how much is enough gross revenue? These questions we must ask ourselves. And if we do, we will find that we don't need to measure the health of our world by what we consume. We just don't need to do that. And I think this new wave of capitalism is, is pushing that idea forward. And we are, we are finding that, you know, people talk about social entrepreneurship all the time. There are classes that taught it. You won't find that phrase on my website. I don't like that phrase, because I think it, it creates an us and them mm. mentality. Like people would say, oh, well, the auto shop across the street from your factory, that's not a social entrepreneur. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. They're, they're involved in the community. They help people on the block. They are kind to people who might need something extra special at their auto shop. So what I'm saying is social entrepreneurship is just good business. That's all it is. It's just good business. And, and so th this, this, this notion, this new notion of capitalism is saying 
And this is a truth that I, I be, I've become to understand literally in the last probably 24 months. And it's this. If you really are focusing on the problems of the world, which could be in your own neighborhood, your own town, whether it's homelessness, whether it's housing, whether it's access to medical care, whether it's poverty, whether it's education, and you're doing it, if you are really focus, focusing on this as an entrepreneur, as we are, we're feeding children every day in the Philippines. We're only 17 people in the whole company. I've been doing this for 12 years. We just built a preschool in Tanzania that where kids had nothing. 300 kids are going to that school now. But but and and so but what I'm what I'm saying is is if, if we do that, we will sacrifice some profit. There, there's this notion out there, oh, you can do both. You can have it all. You can have everything. You can do good and you can do well. That is not true. In most cases, I'm, I'm sure it's true if you own, you know, a pharmaceutical company. But what I'm saying is where you're just, you know, where your margins aren't awesome, you're doing okay. And you focus on the problems in your neighborhood. And you're an entrepreneur, but you want to help feed people. And you're not doing it for some marketing campaign. You're really doing it. You're, you're doing it in kinship and mutuality with your fellow man and woman. You will pay the price in money, but you will gain a, the opportunity to know that you're joyfully alive. You will. I promise. I 100% promise you will know it. Not every day. There, there's going to be struggles. What do you want? That's the question. And that's the question that new capitalists, I think, are asking. Absolutely. And that's my focus here. What do you want behind that? Today, Sean, you got a lot going on. You have a lot of opportunities. You have a new baby granddaughter. What, if I had asked you five minutes after you woke up and said, man, what are you looking forward to today? What would it be? I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to flourishing. You know, that's what I want in my life. And it's what I have seen in my spiritual director, Father Cyprian at the Abbey. And to flourish and understand my true self as God created my true self to be. That's all I want. That's, that, that, is, that is what I want. And so if you would have asked me, it then I would have answered and said, can I please recognize the intersection of movement, you know, and stillness today? Can I, can I recognize that intersection, otherwise known as the present moment? Can I please do that? I probably will here in a little bit. When I hold Goldie, I'll be going over to her house, and I, I pray uh, that, the, that that is granted, that I am in the present moment with her. That's what I want. The intersection of movement and stillness, and it brings me to the doing and the being, which is a primary quest for myself yeah. as a chief doer is I want to be, I don't want that to be on my gravestone. Me too. Uh, it's, it's, when, by the way, for those, we don't need to do anything to be valued by God, hmm. our creator. And this is a hard lesson for me. You know, I'm 59 years old. I've done a lot of stuff, but I'm still doing stuff. But I remind myself that every day I don't need to do anything. I need to be. That's all I need to do is I just need to be. Thank you. Thanks for drawing us to being, Sean. That's why I had you on here. I'm honored by what, you, uh, by what you've done, by what you're doing. Thanks for the 
example and for sharing your heart with us, sharing, as Seth Godin would say, sharing your art with us. I am a grateful recipient. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yep. Thank you for joining us on this journey to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. Sean Askinosi, again, that's our guest that we just talked with his book. If you want to check that out, Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul. You'll hear a lot more on some of the issues that we talked about regarding his own journey, of course, in the book. Uh, you can find it wherever you buy books. You can also check out his website, seanaskinosi.com. If you appreciated this podcast and what you heard, please let us know. Let Sean know. Leave a rating in Spotify. You can leave a review in Apple and say, man, that show with Sean was just awesome. Uh, it would bless him and me as well. You can subscribe on YouTube. Go to Kevin Miller CO and you can watch the full episodes uh, of any of the shows. And you can find me on social media anywhere and a lot of great clips we have running from every show. Kevin Miller, CEO. And if you want to learn how to master your own inner drive, get my book, What Drives You on Amazon. Until next time, stay driven.